please remain standing for the reading of God's word. This morning we're turning again to the Gospel of John chapter 13, and this morning we'll begin reading at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Heavenly Father, we have been participating in your worship. We have actively sung your praises. We have actively joined in praying to you. Now help us to continue to be active in the quietness of listening to your word. For that, we need the active unction of your spirit to enable us to hear and respond to your message for us today. Bless Pastor Andrew as he opens your word so that it does not return void. May we be convicted, may we be comforted, may we be challenged to grow in our faith as we respond to your love for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, by whose stripes we have been healed. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Wow. That was anemic. Yeah, let's try again. Well, good morning. It's good to be together. Uh, thinking uh, it's a gospel morning, right? We've got uh, all of the fresh fallen snow. Think of the promise of uh, the prophet, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's a gospel morning. It's a good morning to come together and, and to hear the good news. It is really good news, but this is a hard passage, and I, I've been wrestling with it uh, all week. You know, Lisa and I were out yesterday. Uh, got a time to get away, just the two of us. I was grateful for that. Uh, we're talking about a number of things. Uh, we really enjoyed lunch together with the college students last uh, Sunday, delicious food, good fellowship, all of those things. 
just thinking about, you know, life being in that phase, you know, young person's life and just how important the word is in that, uh, being encouraged. But the word's not always easy. You know, I, I wish this were just like seven steps to a better you. Uh, we could come together, and you don't have to just be in college to, or a young, you know, young person to, you know, all of us, when we come to the Word of God, really, I think, wrestle with, with how it penetrates and probes and, you know, gets under our skin in, in very, very deep ways. You know, this passage that we just got done reading ended with the phrase, and it was night. You know, and, and maybe it's there in the darkness that some of the weight begins to settle on our shoulders. One writer puts it this way with regards to night. He says, night has an obvious literal meaning, but may also be a literary touch bespeaking either the darkness of soul into which Judas had plunged, or one may think of the blackness of the moment when Jesus' very own uh, Jesus' very own friend moves to hand him over to the ravages of hostile authority. You know, there is, a, there is a heaviness here, a deepness that I think challenges us. But we can't be too morose because Jesus is, after all, the king, right? Jesus is the king, he is our commander, and he is the one that is sending us out. You saw that there, even in verse 19. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus very much has in mind his mission. And that's what we talked about last week, you know, thinking uh, our own place, following up the, the missions month that we had. This is not sort of a farewell speech. One writer puts it this way. The analogies for these chapters, these uh, upper room discourse, it's not a final farewell meeting between Jesus and his friends before being snatched from them by death, kind of a spiritual deathbed scene with all the pathos engendered by such association. Rather, the analogy is that of a commanding officer giving his troops final instructions and encouragement on the eve of a most dangerous mission in which he will lead them. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he is talking to his disciples about, and that's what we are being invited into to hear the words of the Savior, to observe his actions as we go out figuratively, you know, into the night as we go out and follow Jesus where he leads us. So it seems to me a good idea to sort of dive into this and try to understand it. You know, thinking about the night theme and just the difficulty of it, I, I've kind of brought the battle to four. You know, we have characters here. You have Jesus. You have Judas. You have Satan. You know, you have the, the, the setup for a battle. And using that motif, I have three ideas for you this morning. And the first is this. The battle is in our midst. Now, what I mean by that is I mean the, the midst of the church, the very body that Jesus gathers together. There are elements of the battle that is there in 
our midst. This is a truth. I, I call it a total truth. I mean, we, we can't escape it. It's absolutely true that even while we are within the church, and I, you know, I mean that in terms of small c. We can talk about church small c being kind of the local church, the, the visible church, the things that we can see. And then we can talk about church being capital C or the invisible church being the true church of God that goes from all ages and the ones that, you know, God himself can discern. We, we can't always discern that, right? Who is part of capital C? We, we experience flesh and blood sort of small c. And the reality is that we have to deal with here, even in Jesus' own little church, you know, the, the 12 gathered around him, there was still one who was lost. So uh, one writer puts it this way, this paragraph, you know, this, this section right here is a powerful and disturbing reminder of the ambiguity of the life of the people of God in every age until Jesus comes back and purifies his church. Until then, the church is an irreducibly ambiguous company. Uh, we can't completely identify everybody who's sort of in and out, at once both holy and profane, embracing the servants of Christ and the servants of Satan. You know, this is, uh, it's not a nice trait. You see the weightiness, right? Like, this isn't something that we want to come together and, and talk about. You know, it, it does, brings me no joy uh, to think about the fact that you, who I love, you know, some of you may not actually be friends with the Savior. You know, some of you, you know, filling a seat today, you know, may not actually be walking with God uh, in, in, a, in a saving way. You are still holding out on other things. You haven't absolutely put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this story that we are seeing here encourages us or points us in the direction to consider that. And it's something for us each to consider individually. Now, the purpose of it, you know, is not to make you look at the person on your right or your left and say, I wonder if they're in. No, the, person is, the purpose is to make us look at ourselves, you know, and to say, I wonder if, if we're in. You know, do we, do we know, have we heard the voice of the Spirit that says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, their faith and trust in Him alone, not in ourselves, not in our works, not in the fact that you are here in church, not in the fact that you've done all the things well. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the more, uh, as we go through uh, the message. And, you know, like I said, it's heavy. It's, it's a troubling truth. I mean, even to Jesus, you see that in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Uh, it brought Jesus no joy uh, to think about this one who was to be lost in the end. That, that word trouble has a, has a depth to it and a weight to it. It's been used in other places. Jesus 
uh, or it's used in John 11 to describe Jesus when he comes up to the tomb and he's troubled at the death of his uh, friend Lazarus. He's troubled at the unbelief of the people there. We see it in John 12 when Jesus is thinking about his own death and he talks about being troubled that his hour has come. Jews in Matthew 2, uh, you know, when it says Herod was troubled that there was a king born and all of Israel was troubled with him. You remember that sense, you know. So there, there is a deep emotion here. And I, I think, again, this encourages us to say, okay, the reality is, right, the reality is that even within the church, so not counting kind of outside the doors, the culture, even within the church, you know, there is an urgency about, you know, our relationships with the Lord. Uh, you know, Jesus himself felt that. It, it wasn't just something up here for him that he knew. He felt it in his spirit, and, and it created an, an urgency for him with regards to, you know, their their life together. We've talked a little bit about that in, in the leadership class. You know, part, part of our mission, you know, as a church going forward is, is to have a, a shared sense of urgency. Uh, you know, one of the things that we said even this morning, you know, urgency is not desperation. Uh, that, that's not what we're talking about. But if you think about its opposite, urgency on the opposite is complacency. And, and, and we can see Jesus wasn't complacent, and you're going to see it even more, about this one in his midst, and neither should we be. You know, we, we need to really work to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to really work to invite those around us, you know, to the cross, to the gospel, you know, to live out of the resources of the gospel. We, we need to have that kind of urgency. We can't be complacent, even in, even in the church. Why? Well, let's take the, the next step down. The next step says, you know, part of the reason we recognize this is because it, it's not just sort of this corporate thing, but it's, it's a battle that takes place in our hearts. Uh, and I've got two ideas here, prone to wander and prone to wonder. Prone to wander you know, it comes out of that line from come thou fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Uh, and then the prayer, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Why, why do I say that? Well, Judas, Judas is a man, right? Judas is a man, he's got a name, he's got a dad, he comes from a place, uh, Iscariot. Uh, probably from a southern town in Judah uh, named Kerioth. Uh, Kerioth was a sort of 90210 zip code uh, with regards to, um, you know, Jewish society. It was, it was wealthy. Uh, Judas was probably educated, uh, evidenced by the fact that he is the treasurer for the group. He's got some skills. He's got some abilities. And Judas is trusted. Uh, when you look at this story, you, you see how heavily he is trusted because, 
you know, we're sort of behind the scenes and, and we can hear the conversation going on between Jesus and John and we recognize Judas as he's mentioned here and we're told some things, but nobody in the, the disciples group knows this, right? You, you see that even toward the end of this little paragraph that they read, Judas is told to go out and do whatever he was going to do quickly and they had no clue what he was going to do. Uh, they were still thinking that he was going to go make arrangements for the feast, that he was going to give money to the poor. I mean, they trusted Judas. Judas was the last person that they would have suspected to be the one who would have betrayed Jesus. And I think what really struck me as I wrestled with this myself is I have a whole lot in common with Judas. I have a whole lot in common, maybe more in common with him than, you know, sort of the blue collar fisherman, you know, who spoke impetuously, you know, educated, got some skills, got some abilities. There is something there that describes me. And it's kind of chilling to think about what that might have been like. You know, what was it that led Judas astray? We're, we're never really told. You know, we know that he was the treasurer, and we know posthumously that he did steal from the, the kitty, so he was a thief. You know, was he greedy? Some have speculated that he was greedy, that he turned over Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver, but Hardly seems worth it. Was he angry that Jesus wasn't the person that he thought he was going to be? You know, he wanted this earthly Messiah, and Jesus is talking about dying. So fine, you want to die, die. I'll turn you over. I'm just bitter and angry that I am not going to get to the place of prominence that I thought that I was going to get at. Did Jesus, uh, did Judas think he was just going to save his own skin? You know, he saw the ship sort of sinking with Jesus and there was going to be a move, so I'm going to side with the authorities and I'm going to save my own skin. Or, you know, some have postulated that Judas was actually trying just to get things moving, that he wanted Jesus to be the Messiah and he thought that if he could uh, bring this and Jesus would be forced to show his might and his power. Bottom line is we don't know why Judas, what was at the heart of Judas's motivations and actions. But again, but again, if we're honest, we can say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know, I, I can do all, I can check all of the boxes. Judas checked all of the boxes. Educated, probably well-spoken, gifted, able. He was there in the community. He went out, he preached, he taught, he healed, he did all of those things. He checked all of the boxes. But his heart was far from the Savior. And this is probably, you know, where we struggle because you look at verse 18 and you see that it says, I'm not speaking of all of you. This is Jesus talking. Uh, I, I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. There, there is going to be a fulfillment that there will be a betrayer, one who will turn his back. 
And, and, and Jesus indicates that he's chosen me. Now, we may want to say, well, he's just talking about choosing the people who are going to be strong, but Judas's own choice was to go away. And I'll say yes and no, right? So clearly Judas makes his own choice. Acts chapter 1, verse 25, uh, talks about replacing Judas in the band. And uh, we are looking to take the place of this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. I mean, clearly the scriptures speak about Judas's own choice. And we know that when we get to the great judgment throne, that our works will follow us and that we will be judged, uh, you know, on the basis of what we have done. Now, specifically, don't hear what I'm not saying, specifically, uh, you know, our ability to trust in Jesus who, who covers everything, right? But we cannot, we cannot pretend that, there, you know, everything is determined, that we have no choices, that we don't have free will. We, we do. The Scriptures is clear about these things. But there is also the other side in which Jesus does choose Judas. He says very clearly in John chapter 6, verse 70, to be the betrayer. You know, that he, he not only has the foreknowledge, but he, he is enacting a plan in which Judas will fulfill the scripture of this Psalm 48, Jesus will, Judas will fulfill the scripture and he will turn Jesus over to the authorities. And you say, that's not fair. You know, did Judas really have a choice? And we say, yes, <laughs> he did, clearly. But we also say, yes, there are deeper things at work here than we can understand. I mean, this is Romans 9, right? You know, God creates some for his glory, and he creates some for his glory through their reprobation. Uh, those are hard, hard truths. And, and frankly, honestly, I do not have the intellectual ability. I do not have the divinity to be able to go and to really explain these things to you. But when we come to Judas, we come to one who has complete free will, makes his choice, uh, but was also part of a deeper plan. A and, and God is, you know, directing. God is, is following the plan. Jesus is, is following the plan uh, as well. And this is why we wonder, right? Prone to wonder. Wonder about the chosenness. Wonder about the, uh, you know, the responsibility that, that Judas bears. But it moves us, it moves us in a different direction because it moves us to, to, to go beyond Judas and to see the, the story playing out in, a, in an incredibly wonderful way. What do I mean by that? Well, two things. The battle, you know, in our midst, in our heart, but the battle is ultimately in his hands. What are those hands? First of all, a hands of mastery and then the hands of mercy. You know, this section, one writer says, 
displays the mastery of Jesus. Even amid the trauma of uh, unmasking the traitor scheming and the handiwork of Satan right there among his closest friends, Jesus remains in control. What we need to affirm about the death of Jesus is that he was no accidental choice, right? Uh, there, there wasn't sort of a, uh, you know, a confluence. Uh, <laughs> I knew it was in there somewhere. There wasn't a confluence of, uh, uh, of, uh, of happenings that Jesus just happened to get caught up in. No, this was the plan. You know, and, and there is a, a comfort in that because we, we want a Savior who knows what it's like to live our life. We want a Savior who can, uh, can connect to us. And the fact that Jesus was betrayed by a friend says something to us, right? How we know that pain. I mean, we so often when it comes to Jesus, we, we focus on his death. We focus on the time of the cross as his suffering. But his suffering goes so much beyond that. His humiliation goes so much beyond that. His humiliation is spoken of here in that a friend. He couldn't even keep a friend. His friend betrayed him. You ever been betrayed? You ever felt like, you know, one of those closest to you? David knew what it felt, you know, Psalm 48, probably writing about Ahithophel, one of his advisors who turns against him, uh, commits treachery. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by a friend. And I know some of you know what it's like to be betrayed by somebody close to you, a business associate, a family member, a, a friend. You've been betrayed. Jesus' mastery of this situation is partially so that we can go to him in our betrayal and we can say, I, I know what you know what this is like. And, and I want to pour out my heart to you. And we have a true friend who can receive that. But even beyond that, again, he is no accidental tourist. When the mob comes against him in the garden, he doesn't run and hide. You know, he steps forward and they said, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And he steps forward and he says, ego a me, I am. He, he claims the, the very, uh, the, the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. And he says, I am the one you are looking for. Uh, he steps forward into his destiny, if you will. Uh, he steps forward because he is in control. From the very beginning, you know, the, the, the high priest, Pilate, they, they all had a modicum of control. But Jesus is the one who is going forward and calling the shots. And this just gives us so much confidence. You know, I, I'll just say it gives us two things. One, it gives us incredible confidence because in our dark nights, and we all have dark nights. We have dark nights of the soul. We have dark nights of just the uh, circumstances of our lives. In our dark nights, we can have confidence that in the darkest of night, Jesus didn't lose control. He is not going to lose control in your dark night. But we can also have confidence in that his attitude 
towards his people, his attitude towards his father and the plan to save the people, his attitude is one of love. He moved forward intentionally. He moved forward uh, very, uh, very significantly. He moved forward because he knew that that was the path forward. It's so, so encouraging to us to see the level of self-awareness that Jesus has towards who he is, what his mission is, who the Father is, that he had come from the Father, that he was going to the Father. You know, there is comfort and confidence for us as we see that. And it's played out even further, the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is played out even further when we consider the mercy that he is showing in these last moments, even to Judas. Now, you, you know the scene, right? Last week, we, we talked about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We talked about him disrobing, you know, putting on the towel, taking up the basin and kneeling down, taking the feet of his disciples, the dirty, grimy feet, symbolizing, you know, not only their physical journey, but their spiritual selves. What do you think it was like when he took Judas's feet? And he washed them. And he looked into the eyes of Judas. Can you imagine the torment of soul that Judas must have had at that moment? But do you see the loving invitation of the Savior? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And Judas hears these words, and and he knows that there is an invitation there. And then Jesus takes the bread, and probably the way that the arrangement was in the room at that time, based on what we can, you know, they have a kind of a U-shape with couches, and they, they recline on these things. And, um, you know, based on what we can put together, it, it's likely that Judas and Jesus and John shared the couches at the head and that the other disciples were down. So Judas, probably in a place of honor, You know, Jesus, who has taken on the role of the host, who's washed the disciples' feet, and now he is serving the meal, takes, you know, the bread, what was called the paschal sop, you know, the bread that symbolizes the brokenness of the body, and he dips it in the blood, and he gives it to Judas. It's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of welcome. It's an invitation, even in this darkest of nights, to Judas to see, to recognize, to embrace the Savior. You know, the the passage says he loved them to the end. And he loved Judas to the end. His soul was troubled over what he would do 
and we see the mercy of the Lord that just, you know, overshadows anything that I could ever muster. Because if you're betraying me, I guarantee you, I'm not offering you my body and my blood. Not in my own power anyway, not in my own strength. But Jesus extends an invitation of mercy even to this one who will betray him. Judas comes to him in the garden with a kiss, a sign of friendship, and Jesus says, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Is there not even an invitation there to say, Judas, is this really what you want to do? We're friends. We could be friends. And I'm convinced that Judas, had he repented even after the betrayal, would have found his way into the kingdom. After all, Peter denied him, and, you know, in terms of damnation, there's no difference between betraying and denying. I mean, they're both worthy of uh, eternal punishment. But Peter came back in true repentance, broke and said, this is what I've done. I've done. And he turned and he, and he, and he looked for the blessing, the fellowship of Jesus. Judas couldn't do that. All he could do was, you know, what the prophet Hosea says is wail upon his bed. He could just wet bitterly, but he could not come back to Jesus. But the heart of Jesus is such that had he come back, I really believe he would have been forgiven. The heart of the Savior is one of mercy. And so even as we started at the very beginning, we said, you know, we cannot assume that just because you are here that you know that you are in fellowship with this God. What we say at the end is this, God holds out to you the free offer of his grace. God holds out to you the, the very body, the very blood that it took in order to secure our redemption. He holds it out to you in an invitation, and he says, I, I want to be friends with you. And if you do not know him as your friend, as your Lord and Savior, my, my encouragement is, you know, ask the Holy Spirit to, to work in your heart, to help you see, to give you the language, you know, to acknowledge him as, as friend. And, and I know, we know, that that's a prayer that he loves to answer. He answered it in my life. You know, the, the scriptures tell us there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that comes to repentance than to the 90 and 9 who never left before. You know, there is a great, great invitation, the heart of the Savior, that is shown to us here in this passage. You know, it's thinking about the theme of night. I, I was thinking about Elie Wiesel and his book, Night. Some of you know that story, a uh, story of the Holocaust and a young boy and a father who uh, get put into a concentration camp. A lot of the story is, uh, is about Ellie's sort of connection to his father and, and how that all works out. It's not a good story, obviously. I mean, the Holocaust, you know, cannot be painted in anything less than, you know, horrible hues. But um, here's what he says at some point. Never shall I forget that night 
the first night in the camp, which has turned my life into one long night. Seven times cursed, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget those things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. The night exists in our world. Some of you know it very personally. You connect with those words as we shall, not necessarily through the Holocaust, but through your own Holocaust. The night exists, but ultimately what this passage wants us to see is Jesus went out to bring the day. He went into the night in order to bring the dawn. He went into the darkness in order to bring the light. So Satan can do all that he wants. There will be those who will betray the Son, who will betray the church, who will betray the faith. There will be those who stand in opposition. But the Son, the true Son, the S-O-N, capital S, the Son steps forward to do battle with the night. And praise God. He wins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. It's, it, it's full. It's, it's heavy. But it is also true. And we, we take confidence in that because we see you as you are. We see you in all of your power and majesty. We see you as well in your mercy and in your love and in your grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us um, with our finitude, our, 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 our smallness of mind, <laughs> our smallness of heart to respond to you. Father, may we recognize that you have done what we could never do. You know, all of us, like Mr. Vesell, we we cannot in our own resist the night. We would lose our faith. We would lose our God. But you have embraced the night in a particular way. At the very moment of pitch blackness, you have cried, it is finished. And we have the victory through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all of us. I I pray that, that those um, who are of tender spirit, who love the Lord, that this would not be a time of doubt, that your, your spirit would testify with ours. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But Lord, we also pray for those that are hard of heart, that maybe have been resisting the sweet calls of mercy. We would pray that this would be the day, this would be the hour, that they would recognize the Savior kneeling at the feet, that they would recognize the Savior who is offering them friendship and love, and that they would respond with repentance, they would respond in faith. Father, we pray for our church. We ask that you would lead us. We're a mixed company. We know it. But you are ahead, and we will follow. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The opportunity to respond, hymn number 347.